Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 4. So we're going to spend most of our time in Scripture today. Man, what an awesome time of worship we just had. And, and then again, did we just have it? Like, is it, is it over? Is the worship over? Or is it still happening right now? If, if it is, then when did worship start? Did worship start when the countdown, the pre-service countdown ended? Is that when worship started? And if so, or not, then when does worship end? See, if you asked 10 people, what is worship? You would probably, today, possibly get 10 different answers. The most common answer you would probably get is probably a variation of something along the lines of, yeah, worship is when we sing to God in church. That'd probably be the most common answer, at least especially in America uh, today, that worship has become uh, exclusively synonymous with music and singing to God in church. And uh, some of the people might answer in a more traditional manner with like traditional sacramental worship, with like worship is when we take communion together, which we're going to do later today, um, and or baptism, that those are the things that are worship. And some might even take the, their definition of worship outside of the church walls and say, well, worship is when I spend time alone in prayer and in worship and in studying God's word by myself with the Lord at home in the morning or in the evening or throughout the day. That's worship. And all of those things, I would say, yes. Not one of those things is exclusively worship. They all are worship. Now, if we're going to, again, try and define something, especially as it pertains to God, where should we look? Say it again. Say it confident. You know where we got to look. The Bible. We got to look in Scripture. If we look in the Old Testament, Abraham built altars and sacrificed, offered sacrifices to God wherever God had appeared to him and spoke to him. That was Abraham's response, that God revealed himself to Abraham, spoke to Abraham, and Abraham's response was, I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to offer sacrifice. Moses, leading the nation of Israel out of captivity towards the promised land, at the command of God, built a tabernacle, a mobile tent that was going to be a mobile house of God where the presence of God dwelled among his people. And that is there also where the people of Israel would go to offer sacrifices unto God. This was worship. And then we see later, Solomon builds this lavish, permanent temple. Eventually it would be destroyed because of war and all sorts of different things. But the temple that would be built in Jerusalem that Solomon built, where the presence of God, again, would come and dwell among his people, and his people would offer sacrifices. And this was called worship in the Old Testament. And so already we kind of have a little bit of a picture being painted that worship so far was when people would offer sacrifice at the temple or tabernacle or an altar. There was an altar and offering sacrifice to God, and that's what worship was. But even still, not exclusively, because the Old Testament also told a whole lot or, or showed us an emphasis on the ancient, ancient Hebrew home of studying, reciting, and memorizing God's law. This was called worship. That was another act of worship. Then here we go, many, many, many times. If you look up every account 
of worship in the Old Testament. Um, it, it, getting past a lot of the times that the word worship was mentioned where God was commanding, saying, don't worship any God but me, or they worship false idols. But when you look at worship in its proper context in the Old Testament, overwhelmingly the majority of the mention of worship had something said like, and they bowed down, or they laid prostrate on the ground before God in worship. This was worship. In the New Testament, we see over and over accounts of worship where the worshiper either bowed down in worship or fell at the feet of Jesus in worship or again fell face first on the ground. If you haven't caught it yet, there's an overwhelming theme of reverence and awe that is synonymous with scriptures, sightings of worship. There was always, always in the biblical accounts of worship, a attitude, a posture of the heart of reverence and awe. Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah has a vision. This is a famous account where he's, in his vision, he's in the literal throne room of God, where there's angels flying around God, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah, in that environment, falls down on his face and says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of the glory of God, he was confronted with his sin. Nobody preached to him about his sin. He just was seeing the glory of God and went, whoa, I shouldn't be here. Because I'm in the glory, the presence of God. He was thrown down in awe and wonder. We see this multiple times in scripture. The, the apostle John, when he receives the revelation from Jesus Christ, the apostolic, or the, uh, the apocalyptic revelation, the book of revelation that we read nowadays, when he, Christ appeared to him in his glorified state, what does John do? The guy who was Jesus' best friend on the earth, in this state, seeing God in his glory, throws himself down like a dead man, it says, out of fear and reverence and wonder and awe over the God that he was face to face with. Worship is an expression of reverence and adoration of God. It's not just singing, it is singing. It's not just reading scripture and praying. It is reading scripture and praying. It's not just offering sacrifices. Thankfully, we live in the new covenant where we're not offering animal sacrifices anymore. But it doesn't stop there. Because if you go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said, Brothers, I beseech you, I beg you by the mercies of God that you would offer your bodies, offer yourself as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Again, the sacrifice, but it's not a spotless lamb. It's not the many animals that were offered in the old covenant or the incense. The spiritual worship is the sacrifice of our lives. So when 
does worship begin? I would argue it's the moment your alarm says, time to get up. That's when worship begins. See, the question is not, are you or aren't you a worshiper? The question is, whom or what do you worship? What, like these accounts in Scripture, has the throne of your heart that causes you to revere it and prioritize it above all other things? That's what worship is. Worship is sacrificing your day-to-day life. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, do you worship God? Have you, like all the people that we have account of in Scripture, have you seen God for who he is in the truth? Have you seen him for who Scripture says he is? Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the infinite value and treasure that is Jesus Christ, so much so that you're willing to sacrifice your life as a living sacrifice unto God. Because if you haven't seen who God truly is through Scripture and the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and seeing the value and worth and wonder of Christ, then all this church stuff, reading your Bible, singing in church, praying, doing good things, all of that is actually a burden and it's dead works that do not glorify God. But when you have seen the infinite value of Jesus Christ. More valuable than your money. More valuable than your dreams. More valuable than your comfort. More valuable than your hopes and aspirations and your achievements. More valuable than your family. More valuable than anything and everything in your life is Christ. When you have seen that Christ, the treasure in the field, worth abandoning and selling all that you've got so that you can have that treasure. When you've seen that Jesus Christ, the response is a life that becomes worship. Worship is not the time where we come into the service every weekend and we sing songs about God. That is a sliver of it. That is a part of it. Our wog bottom line this week Worship is a response to who God is, what God has done, and what God has spoken. That is worship. It is a response to who God is, what God has done, and what God has spoken. In grade school, uh, there was a scientific principle we all learned, uh, the principle of causation or causality. I assume you're familiar with this concept. It is more commonly referred to as cause and effect. Essentially, influence by which one event, process, state, or object contributes to the production of another event, process, state, or object, cause and effect, where the cause is partly responsible for the effect and the effect is partly dependent on the cause, cause and effect. We... we, we, we do this all the time with everything. I mean, right now, the cause is gravity, and the effect is you're not flying off into space. Um, the cause 
is Flaming Hot Cheetos and Mountain Dew, the effect is regret. <laughs> the cause, who God is. When we meditate, when we ponder, when we muse, when we roll over and over in our hearts and minds, who God is. Especially when we like look at that account of Isaiah 6 and we see that these angels are perpetually for eternity flying circles around God's throne and all they do is fly circles around God's throne looking at God and saying over and over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. That's all they do and they're not bored of it. To consider that God, who he is, that he is holy and he is righteous and he is perfectly just and perfectly loving and full of mercy and grace and truth. When we look at who God is, that is the cause of awe and wonder and reverence independence, worship. Who he is is the cause and the effect is our worship. If the cause is what God has done, when I consider the glorious scriptural account of the gospel over and over when I go to Ephesians chapter 2 and I see, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. When I consider what God has done in Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we received the spirit of adoption. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God looked at us and said, I want you and my family, even though you've rebelled, even though you've been my enemy, even though your heart has turned from me, I want you. When I consider what God has done with his son on the cross, we sang it this morning, that death was arrested in that moment. And then when Jesus arose with my freedom in hand, whoo! When I consider what God has done, the effect is faith and repentance. When I consider what God did by paying for me on the cross with the blood of his son, the effect is faith in my heart and repentance from my sin. The effect is joy and praise and gratitude and elation. It's casting off shame. It's Worship. The cause is what God has spoken out of his word. When we see his law, when we see his decrees, when we see the truth that he declares in his word, the effect is obedience. The effect is comfort. When I see what God has said of who he is and who I am to him, when I see what he has spoken in his word in the year 2020, when I see what God has spoken in a year of turmoil worse than I can remember in my 35 years, almost 36, when I, when I consider what God has spoken in a year like this, 
The effect is comfort for my soul, salve for my soul, healing and confidence in the God of the universe who knows how many hairs are on my head. That doesn't even matter how many hairs are on my head. That tells me he is infinite, or infinitely and intimately acquainted with every detail of my life. That word of God, what God has spoken, brings comfort to my soul. You turn to John chapter 4. As we're talking about worship, here's one of the most famous accounts in all of Scripture. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Let me just say real quick, I recently heard a very, very, very famous pastor cite this passage and go, now let's stop for a moment. Did you see that? Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through some area. Now, maybe you have to go through some area in your... That is not faithful exegesis of the scripture. If you see someone do something like that, please click the X in the corner or change the channel or don't like, don't share. That's not how scripture is rightly divided. It's by going, Samaria, you might have to go through some... Okay, moving on. That's not the point today, Stephen. So he came down... Or he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me. This was very socially not acceptable. This was very politically incorrect. This was very much not okay in the uh, first century uh, world of Israel. Jews and Samaritans, not friends, didn't like each other. In fact, they hated each other. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, the one who put that well there? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Here's where he flips the script. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She goes, oh, snap. Watch what she says here. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think. Our fathers were, she, uh, we're talking about something really awkward and uncomfortable here. So you're a prophet. Let's get spiritual and talk about something religious. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place, uh, the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Saying it's not going to matter where. The pragmatism is not what matters. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I'm going to read that again. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I love this next line. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship and must, must worship in spirit and and truth. The woman said to him, oh, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, can you imagine what her, her thoughts when he says this? He says, I who speak to you am he. I am he, that Christ you're talking about. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, <laughs> she, she leaves and goes to tell people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Already, Jesus is saying the Father is seeking those who would worship in spirit and in truth. God is, Jesus, God in the flesh, is talking to this woman, telling her this is what Jesus cares about in worship. She is someone who her lifestyle that Jesus puts on blast, she is one who is having her worship exposed. Remember, everyone's a worshiper. Are you worshiping God? Her worship was exposed when Jesus said to her, yeah, it's true. You, you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Her worship was being exposed in that moment. But God graciously, Jesus graciously and mercifully speaks with her and ministers to her so much so that in a way she leaves and is on the path to becoming one of the true worshipers. She goes back to the town and says, I found a man who told me all I've ever did, is it possible that he is the Christ? The seed of worship is planted and it's beginning to grow. Meanwhile, the disciples, in verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's talking about this city of Sikar and Samaria. He's saying, look at these people that are hopelessly lost in sin. The field is white for harvest, and all you're thinking about is food. And what my food is, is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In this context, Jesus is talking about evangelizing and bringing people into the kingdom. Verse 39, getting back to the Samaritan woman. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, worshipers were being born in the town of Sikar because of the woman's testimony of the Christ. It says, many through the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of of his word. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Worshippers were being born that day, those two days in the town of Sychar, in the area of Samaria, in ancient Israel. God was creating true worshipers who would worship in spirit and in truth. What does that even mean? In spirit, it says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That it is in the depths of our soul and our heart with the spirit of God inside of us compelling us to worship God with all of our hearts. To worship in spirit is to not go, when death was arrested and my life began, oh, your grace so free. I like this song. It's got a good groove. Washes over me. Oh, I like Gino singing. He's got a pretty voice. Worshiping in spirit from the depths of your soul as a response to who God is, what he has done, what he has spoken, looks completely different. The true worshipers, their worship looks completely different. I don't say this in condemnation. I say this as invitation. Worshippers were being born that day. Worshippers must worship God in spirit and in truth. That is, true worship takes place on the inside and the heart or the spirit of the worshiper. Worship pleasing to God must be sincere and transparent and offered with a humble and pure heart. But see, that alone is not enough because he didn't just say worship in spirit. He didn't just say worship passionately from the depths of your soul. He says worship in truth. Worship in truth. It connects the heart or spirit of worship with the truth about God. 
and his work of redemption as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and the scriptures. This is why we must be so diligent and so careful to humbly seek the truth. How can we possibly worship in truth if we don't know the truth? How can we worship in truth if we don't know the truth? This is why so many people offer false worship. This is why so many people do things as aspects attempting to offer worship to God, but God is not pleased in their offering. We see this in the very first account of worship in Scripture. In the book of Genesis, there's two brothers, Cain and Abel. One offers a worshipful, worshipful sacrifice according to God's commands in a way that honors and glorifies God, and God delights in it and receives it and loves that sacrifice. His brother Cain offers a sacrifice the way he felt like it should be. He offered the sacrifice the way he thought it should be, not the way that God required. And God rejected his sacrifice, his worship. God rejected his worship. And he got bitter in his heart. And that led to him murdering his brother out of jealousy. Worshiping in truth matters. It matters that we know the truth so we can worship in truth. That's why so many people offer, offer false worship in their lifestyle because they either don't know the truth or they have twisted it to fit their fleshly desires. This is what Paul warned Timothy about when he said, a day is coming when people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but will heap up for themselves teachers to scratch their itching ears and satisfy the passions of their flesh. If that doesn't look like today, I don't know what does. People, people not going, I just want the truth. I just want you for who you are. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing added to. But people going, I, I think God should be this way. And like Cain, offering their preferred method of worship. And God is going, no. No, that does not honor me. That does not glorify me. It is not true. Worship, again, is a response to who God is. That's truth, the truth of who God is. It's a response to what he has done, the truth of what he has done, the work he has accomplished. It is a response to his word, what he has spoken, the truth. Now, a few thoughts and precautions about worship music. This is the part where you get mad at me some. Maybe. I hope not. I hope not. Every time I get up here, I have to remind myself that I'm going to give an account to God for what I say. That's terrifying. <laughs> so, there we go. This is why it's so important to be careful and discerning about the songs you listen to and sing. Most churchgoers' theology is more influenced by the songs they hear than the sermons they hear. The average churchgoer's theology is built more upon the songs that they hear than the sermons that they hear. Why is that? None of you are going to leave today and put this message in your car and recite it over and over and over and over to where you memorize it. You might go home and listen to it again tomorrow or another day. You might listen to it again, and that's awesome, but are you going to do 
what we do with music to where it becomes embedded into your heart, where you can be walking around Walmart and subconsciously be speaking it again? No. See, music is incredibly powerful. It is a wonderful gift from God to give glory and honor to him as well again. But if we're not careful, we're going to let our theology, our pictures of God, what we believe to be true about God, to be built by the songs that we listen to, the songs that we sing, more than the truths that we see read in Scripture. And that's something we need to be mindful of. That can be a wonderful thing. That can be a wonderful aid, a wonderful tool to reciting, memorizing, and embedding in your heart rich gospel truths from the Word of God. When we sing songs like, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, my cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest trial and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the power of Christ I stand. That's not a scripture, but I just cited it to you from memory. How? Because of the power of music. And those truths frame my picture of who God is because I have compared those lyrics to the word of God. Now, I'm not telling you, let's throw away every song, and I'm not telling you, stop listening to that band or this artist or anything like that. I'm not going there today so much. I want to point something out. Every time, we, ha we have to be mindful of what's building and influencing our theology. Every time my wife and I watch a movie, um, she probably used to get annoyed at this and maybe still does, but I think she's probably just gotten used to it. Anytime we watch a movie, we'll finish the movie and we'll be like, oh man, I love that movie. That was so funny when they did this or when that happened or that, that time where he was like, oh, and the bullets were flying. That was so cool and the special effects and all that. And uh, here's what I loved about it. And I didn't like this part though when they did that and I thought they could have wrote that better. You know, when you give your natural response to the movie, you don't, you walk out of the movie and you start talking about it. Then after all of that is done, I always go, now what were they trying to teach us? What was that movie trying to teach us? Because if you haven't noticed, let me go ahead and lift up the shades and say, these movies are trying to teach you something. And so I'm going to enjoy the entertainment as long as there's not things in it that are offensive to the Holy Spirit of God. But... Uh, I, I want to be mindful of what is attempting to teach me worldview and what is attempting to teach me truth claims and what is attempting to teach me how things ought to be. There's morals in all these movies. I say that to say we ought to do the same with music. Where we go, oh man, I love that song. I love the beat. I love the rhythm. I love the lyrics right here. I love when that song says this. I love when that song we sang... Um, we're free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. I love that part because it, it reminds me of the truth that we're free in Christ, free from sin, free from death, free from the wrath of God. We've been saved. I, I, I love that truth. But we also ought to look at every word and go, is that true? I'm not saying you should throw every song out. I am saying we need to be discerning and at least confront uh, I, I'm not so sure about that line. 
and acknowledge it so that we don't let false truth and songs teach us. Because guess what? Platinum records does not equal valid truth. Okay? New York Times bestseller does not equal valid truth. Thousands and thousands and thousands of followers online does not equal valid truth. And that's why we take all of this and compare it to the word of God. I'm going to give you an example, and this is where you guys are going to be like, oh, he went there? Really, he went there? Buckle up, here we go. God's love is not reckless. I'm going to give an account for what I say. God's love is not reckless. There is no being that has ever existed that has more calculated, intentional, purposeful love than God. Before every day, it says in Psalms 145, every day was written. Oh, Pastor Stephen, but I love that song. I know. It feels good. And I can agree with 98% of that song. So you know what I do when I hear that song? I still worship. I still go, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. Amen. That's true. You have been so, so good to me. Amen. That's true. He has been so, so good to me. And then when the chorus comes, oh, the overwhelming, never ending, I say, perfect love of God. It's that easy for me. But I want to at least confront something that's, a, that's trying to teach me something. Why, why does this matter? The definition of reckless, utterly unconcerned about the consequences of some action. Utterly unconcerned with the consequences. No, it was the consequences of the action of offering his son that motivated him. Not lack of concern for it. And, oh, we don't like this. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> I'm not saying stop listening to that song. I'm not saying stop listening to any songs. You walk out your convictions, but I do want you to at least grow in discernment where you can confront error in songs so that you don't let songs build false theology about God in your heart. Okay? Listen, do we want to worship God in spirit and in truth? Do we want that? Because God is seeking those who would worship him that way. Also, we want to be careful not to run the risk of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The worship song, the worship music that I like, there are songs that I, musically and a lot of the lyrics and stuff like that, that, that I love that make me feel good, but at the same time, I don't love them more than God. We ought not. And it's easy to love and worship the creation rather than the creator. And if the creation argues against truth of who is the creator, then I need to wrestle with that. Music is a creation, not the creator. Music is a gift not the giver. Music can point us to the Savior, but it is not the Savior. 
Music is great, but Jesus is greater. Music is great. What a wonderful gift God has given us in music. It's great, but Jesus is greater. So if the gift has been tainted, I need to come back and say, who are you? And I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Um, Augustine, um, in the third and fourth century, was a, a, one of the early church fathers. One time he wrote with regards to worshiping in church through song. He was in this era of wrestling between uh, his, his love for music above loving God. He, he saw in himself a wrestling there. And this is what he wrote in his confessions. He said, I am inclined to approve of the custom of singing in church in order that by indulging the ears, weaker spirits may be inspired with feelings of devotion. Yet when I find the singing itself more moving than the truth which it conveys, I confess that this is a grievous sin. And at those times, I would prefer not to hear the singer Whoa, when I find the singing itself is more moving than the truth, when I find that the music and the dynamics and the drum build and the guitar part, when I find that Andrea's voice and all those things are more moving than the truth that is being conveyed, Augustine is arguing that's grievous sin. That's when we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. We also run the risk sometimes of allowing music to become the mediator of the new covenant. I'm going to say that again. We run the risk of allowing music to become the mediator between us and God and the new covenant. I need to get into God's presence, so I'm going to turn on that song. Wait, 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 wait. Read the book of Hebrews, and it's going to tell you a whole lot about how Jesus is our high priest, the mediator between us and God. Jesus tore the veil, not music. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for the saints, not music. I love music, okay? I love it. But what if I don't have music? Am I unable to get into the presence of God? No, if I've been born again and regenerated by the Spirit of God, God's presence is with me every minute of the day. It's my awareness that changes. That's why worship music is so powerful, because it resets my mind on truths that remind me that I'm in the presence of God. I carry the presence of God everywhere I go. Don't let music be your mediator, your path to God. No, Jesus is the path through the Holy Spirit inside of you, according to the truth of the word of God. Colossians 3.16. We're going to get to, in just a second, we're going to read that. And one last thing, we also run the risk of being exposed to false teaching by ministry association. We run the risk of being exposed to false teaching by ministry association. And one more time, I don't want to harp on this. Again, we sing some of their songs. Bethel is the most popular worship team in the world today. Um, and they have some great songs, a lot of great songs, 75%, maybe even more of what they sing I could agree with. But it, I want to just confront that even their pastor, Bill Johnson, I quote, has taught that Jesus did not do miracles as God. He did them as a man in right standing with God. 
And therefore, as men in right standing with God, we are responsible to do the same. Guys, I don't throw this word around very often, but to even imply that Jesus was ever for a moment not God is rank heresy. I don't say that word very often. I don't just throw the heresy tag out. And I'm not saying that Bill Johnson teaches everything false. He probably has some stuff that, uh, he does have some, Bill Johnson can teach me more about living in faith. And he can teach me more about praying for miracles. And he can teach me more about things like that. But to imply something like that is just heresy. I say that lovingly to say, I'm not telling you don't listen to their music. I'm telling you be mindful of what theology might be attempting to be taught to you. That's why I love Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Check this out. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In Colossians 3.16, Paul is telling the church at Colossae, that there is a relationship of having the word of Christ dwelling richly in your heart and it rolls straight into teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There ought to be a correlation to the truth of the word of God in our hearts, to what we sing. 